Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to re-listen to one of our older podcasts. It's actually one of my favorites. It's with Dr. Neil Shaw. And it's talking all about cesareans and how to avoid unnecessary cesareans. He's really insightful on this. So we're taking a moment to renew some of our favorites because um, I'm taking a little vacation and I've got my daughter here to say hi. Do you want to say hi? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we had a moment of, of shyness. Anyway, so we're going to the beach for a week, so I'm just relaunching this one of my favorites. So thanks so much for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we have Dr. Neil Shaw, and he is going to talk about the cesarean rate in our country and taking a deeper look at why it is what it is and what it should be and kind of his take on it. Let me tell you guys a little bit about Dr. Shaw. Dr. Neil Shaw, MD, NPP, is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Delivery Decision Initiative at Harvard's Ardnane Labs. As an obstetrician gynecologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Dr. Sher cares for patients during critical life moments that range from surgery to primary care to childbirth. As a scientist and social entrepreneur, he is a globally recognized expert in design, testing, and spreading solutions that improve healthcare. Dr. Shaw is listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare by the Becker Hospital Review and has been profiled by the New York Times, CNN, and other outlets. He is a senior author of the book Understanding Value Based Healthcare. Prior to joining the Harvard faculty, Dr. Shaw founded Cost to Care, a global NGO that curates insights from clinicians to help delivery systems provide better care. 
In 2017, Dr. Shah co-founded the March for Moms Association, a coalition of 20 leading organizations to increase public and private investment in the well-being of mothers. Hi, Neil. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Deb. So I want to get started on just asking how you got on this path to exploring the cesarean rate in our country. Not a lot of OBs seem to question it. You know, I wasn't a person who questioned it either. Um, When I was a resident, which was not that long ago, um, my startle reflex was probably to do a C-section if somebody yelled too loudly. Um, (laughs) I was in an environment where, uh, you know, it was really high risk, um, at least one in three uh, deliveries were a C-section. When I finished residency, in fact, uh, there's like a minimum number of deliveries you have to do to be qualified as a doctor. And I had multiple times the minimum number of C-sections I had to do, but I was struggling to get the normal vaginal deliveries, actually. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it seemed normal to me. I think part of the challenge of the cesarean issue is that because everybody knows someone who's had a C-section, it seems fairly normal. And you know, it's not just common, but people seem okay. So, and in many cases, are just happy that they have uh, their children, and you know that that's sort of that. But um, after I finished my training, uh, I joined a, an institute at Harvard that was looking at how we can uh, get better care at lower cost at scale in the American healthcare delivery system. And uh, you know, as I started to think about the intersection of innovation and in healthcare and childbirth, I realized that you know, just the hospitalization for childbirth in this country is 0.6% of GDP. We have a $17 trillion GDP and just hospitalizing moms and babies around childbirth is 0.6% of it. It's crazy. So, you know, today, 11,000 women will deliver babies in American hospitals. One in three of them will get major surgery for the birth. And then 10% of those babies will go to a NICU. And for that, we're spending 0.6% of GDP. So can we do better than that? Absolutely. And that's what sort of started me on this. That's interesting. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, A little overwhelmed to hear how many, but really glad to hear your path on that. So how much of an increase have we seen in the U.S. in the last 30 years at the cesarean rate? Well, since the early 1970s, um, basically over the last generation or two of moms, we've seen a 500% increase in the use of the surgery. And what's accounting for this? You know, I don't think we actually know. There's a lot of conventional wisdom about what what might be driving it, and none of it bears out. So I actually think the more interesting thing is what's not driving it. So, you know, when I talk to my colleagues, and I have a lot of colleagues who've been in practice since the early 1970s. You know, in almost every room I go into, um, I ask people, like, you know, how many people here have been practicing for a decade? How about two decades? How about three? And, you know, I usually stop there to be kind. But there are people who've been around this whole time and watched. And a lot of them will tell you, moms look like 80s or 70s. That those are old. Obesity. There's more hypertension. There's more diabetes. There's more um, IVF. So there's more twins and octomoms and stuff. And the thing that's weird is that those demographic shifts actually explain very little of the increase. Um, it turns out C-sections have gone up in 18-year-olds just as much as they've gone up in 35-year-olds. Really? Uh, yeah. It also turns out, you know, people are like, well, you know, medical malpractice has gotten worse. 
But during eras where medical malpractice and reimbursement policies have been the same, C-section rates have continued to skyrocket. You know, people are like, well, you know, women are demanding C-sections more than they used to. And that's just a myth. It turns out that less than half percent of women are electively requesting primary C-sections. So that's not really a thing either. Uh, so, you know, pretty much every conventional explanation that I've heard doesn't really explain the trend very well. Um, well, are we seeing a better results for moms and babies since we have this 500% increase in the last 30 years? Not really. Uh, not relative to how much we're doing it. And I think there's a paradigm in healthcare where uh, doing more is automatically equated with doing better, right? Like better care and more care are kind of conflated. But this is a case where quite clearly we are doing more uh, to a really significant degree and not only are we not making people better off, but we might actually be hurting them in a lot of really concerning ways. Um, you know, particularly for, we've made advances in the last 50 years for sure for uh, premature infants in particular and making sure that they're okay. But for healthy moms with one baby pointing the right way to go out, <laughs> head down, and uh, or full term, um, C-section seem to be only hurting. And what way are they hurting the mom? Well, I mean, baby. just to be clear, I mean, C-sections are often, uh, they're designed to be a life-saving surgery and they're often necessary. Uh, but when they're unnecessary, which we think are at least half of them, when we look across the country, at least half of them, uh, cumulatively, this is uh, billions of dollars that we are spending that could be reinvested in better health. Um, it's hundreds of thousands of moms who are just suffering because you can either go home with a newborn infant with a large incision on your abdomen or without one. And, you know, having recently brought home an infant, we had a baby uh, about eight months ago, I realized for the first time, like how challenging those first couple weeks are and how much more challenging they must be if you have an incision uh, as opposed to not having one. And then, you know, fundamentally, uh, all surgeries carry risks. Mm -hmm. So your risks of um, surgical complications like hemorrhage, uh, severe sepsis, organ injury are about three times higher with a C-section compared to a vaginal delivery. And then it gets even more complicated, Deb, because most families don't have just one baby. Um, most have more than one. And a primary C-section, the first time someone has a C-section, is a very straightforward surgery. But we are the only surgeons that routinely cut on the same scar over and over again. And that leads to big problems uh, where, you know, the second or third or fourth C-section is actually extraordinarily complicated. Well, what, what might be some of those problems that would arise for second or third or fourth C-sections? Well, uh, I've, I can train a new intern to do a C-section in a first-time mom in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing the third or fourth one, I often ask for a senior resident to come in with me because we've been in abdomens where it just looks like a melted box of crayons. Because of all know, the scar it, tissue? From all the scar tissue. Yeah, everything kind of fuses together. Uh, and the most dangerous type of fusion is where the placenta uh, can get caught up in the cesarean scar tissue. And mm -hmm. you know, the placenta is a big bag of blood vessels that gets 25% of everything the heart pumps. Uh, and when it gets caught in the cesarean scar, it doesn't detach normally and women can bleed to death. It's actually an obstetrician and probably a mom's worst nightmare. It's this condition called placenta accreta. And it's created by C-sections. And this condition has become 1,200% more common in the same period that C-sections become 500% more common. 
1,200% more common. It's become so common now, actually, that uh, people are creating these um, advanced centers to deal with placenta accreta. And, you know, in the U.S., we're seeing an increasing maternal mortality rate. We're not really sure why, but it's been going up. The number of moms who die in childbirth has been going up for 20 years in the United States of America. And the smoking gun, uh, the leading cause is hemorrhage. And one of the leading causes of increasing rates of hemorrhage is this condition that's caused by C-sections. I don't feel like people hear about that side of it. You know, it, because it's so commonplace, you know, a third of women are having it, it feels like it's just socially accepted. Like, oh, I had a C-section or, oh, I'd like to get a C-section or whatever reason. And it doesn't seem like there's any real push, not any, I shouldn't say that, but I just don't feel like the full results or the outcome are explained to women that they may want to try a little harder to step back and not have that. So would you put this as some of the long-term effects that mom could have as a risk would be the placenta accreta if they want second, third babies? Absolutely. That's a significant risk. And that's why we care so much about doing the C-section the first time, especially when it's unnecessary. The kind of ironic thing is that First-time moms who are otherwise healthy, who make it to full term, are the women who are at the lowest risk of needing a C-section, mm-hmm. but that also makes them the most vulnerable population to the unnecessary C-section so and what, all of the others that follow. Well, what would you define as unnecessary C-section? Because I hear a lot of women come back saying, you know, I had an emergency C-section, thank God for the C-section. Is it more hindsight that you can say that was unnecessary, or what can they do during labor to try not to have an unnecessary C-section? Well, th- those are a lot of good questions. But the first thing that I'll say <laughs> is that uh, childbirth is so deeply personal, Deb, as you know, mm-hmm. that uh, one of the things that's hard about this is you don't want to devalue anybody's experience, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, by calling a C-section unnecessary, that even of itself can feel like a loaded term. And the intention is not at all to devalue what moms go through in laboring, going through surgery, and having a child, which even when they have major surgery, they often will remember as a positive experience. Not always, but sometimes. And so it's important to recognize that. And that's part of the challenge, I think, with this. Um, The other thing is that I think there's a tendency to justify your personal experience. So um, I think moms are often presented with this false choice between what's in the interest of their baby and what's in the interest of for them. Sometimes there's a tension. And one of the things that makes obstetrics unique is that we've got two patients and their interests are not always aligned, the baby and the mom. But, you know, um, moms will often remember their experience as, you know, my baby's heart, there was something going on with my baby's heart rate and they had to do a C-section and they saved the baby's life or the baby had a cord wrapped around the neck. I mean, the truth from the obstetrician's point of view is that all those things are pretty common and that a lot of babies have cords wrapped around their neck that are born vaginally with no problems. And uh, heart rate tracings are really hard to interpret. In fact, the point in the 1970s where C-section rates take off is when we introduced this technology to monitor fetal heart rates. And this technology was designed to save lives. But, you know, 40, 50 years later, it has not done that at all. And the only thing it's done is reliably is increase C-section rates. Uh, so it's tough. So do you support that intermittent monitoring? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense to check in on a baby's heart rate every mm-hmm. now and again. Um, it does not make sense to continuously monitor the heart rate. We do that in ICUs, you know, like the only setting in healthcare delivery where we do that is in ICUs. And the reason that we do it in ICUs is because we've pre-selected a population that's at high risk of heart failure. 
The problem with doing it in a low-risk group of people is that you get a lot of information you can't interpret. And so when you look at the breakdown of C-sections for low-risk women, about a third of it is due to labor progress, and about a quarter of it is due to these fetal heart rate tracings that we're so bad at interpreting. So are we putting ICUs and the labor and delivery floor kind of on the same uh, path of support? or? Uh... Yeah, I take, it, I, I take it a step further, Deb. Okay. I think that if you were to go to the cardiac ICU of any hospital in the United States and then go to the labor floor, they would pretty much look identical, right? Because what, what defines an ICU is not a ventilator. What defines an ICU is the level of support from the nurses. So if you can have one nurse matched to one patient, you've got an ICU by definition. So the cardiac ICU does that, the labor floor does that. Um, cardiac ICU can monitor vital signs in real time, so can the labor floor. The cardiac ICU can titrate medicine on a minute-to-minute basis. That means like every minute you can make small micro-adjustments to medicine. We do that all the time. That's what oxytocin is. The only difference between the ICU and the labor floor is that on the labor floor, the operating rooms are actually attached. So if you think about it, we have the most intense treatment environment of the entire hospital for the healthiest patients. That makes one step back and question the, the way we're approaching birth. So if I'm correct in my statistics, I believe the World Health Organization recommends that cesarean rates should only be about 10 to 15%. Do you agree with this, or what percentage do you see the best outcomes? Because it seems like, as you just equated the ICU to labor and delivery, that you know we might not need to do so much work as we are. So how's yeah. that? So what are you seeing, what should, in your opinion, be the cesarean rate that we're seeing the best outcomes? Well, I mean, for sure, if you take healthy people, most of whom it's their first hospitalization, right, because they're healthy, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you put them in an ICU and you surround them by surgeons, you'll probably get more C-sections than you need. You know, that just makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the ideal C-section rate, we don't know what it is. Okay. So the WHO recommended 10 to 15%, but like, you know, context matters a lot. So they were recommending that as a global standard, but the right C-section rate in sub-Saharan Africa is not the right C-section rate in the United States. Um, then, you know, within the U.S., we try to, we've tried to create benchmarks for hospitals and the right rate for one hospital might not be the right rate for another, depending on the populations that they serve. Um, what I can tell you is that right now our C-section rate in the U.S. is 32%. Um, my team did a study of 194 countries around the world where we looked at C-section rates and we compared them to outcomes for moms and babies. And we didn't see any benefit in countries that did more than 19%. And there was a long tail, including countries that do well over 50 60%. Um, so there's a lot of unnecessary C-sections both in the U.S. and in the world. Um, yeah. So how would one minimize the possibility of having a cesarean that they would wish not to have? There are a lot of things that you can do, I think, from the position of just, you know, being a mom that wants uh, or, or is just being thoughtful about this, which I assume is most of the audience is listening because they're listening to this podcast. <laughs> the, I mean, the, the first thing is to know that um, although plans can change, um, and that's one of the things that makes labor and delivery sometimes challenging. It's good to have some sense of your preferences because there are a lot of uh, things that are legitimately preference sensitive, both in pregnancy and in labor and in birth. And so I think just informing yourself about uh, different options uh, and particularly like having some sense of what labor is going to be like. 
there are some people who walk into the experience kind of cold, you know, and like there are very few people that would run a marathon with no physical or mental preparation. Um, and, uh, labor is a little bit of a marathon. Um, you know, the uterus is a muscle and it works hard for hours. Uh, and so I think having some sense of that is really helpful, particularly at the beginning of labor, which, you know, for, for moms for whom it's the first time, you know, early labor can take days, um, and that can be normal. Um, and coming into the hospital too early is probably, well, coming in to the hospital when you're in active labor as opposed to early labor is probably the single biggest thing that any mom can do to decrease her chances of getting a C-section. Um, we can unpack why separately. Um, <laughs> I yeah. know. I absolutely agree. That's one thing. When I was an active doula, I would often get the call from the partner, we're heading in. That was a really big contraction. And they say, let me talk to her. Let's just hold off. Yeah. yeah. If you go in too early, they either admit you and start, you know, what could be a cascade of interventions or they'll send you away, which is also a little deflating for the mom. Sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's a hard thing because we've got this paradigm of in healthcare where we want to relieve suffering, right? And that's sort of like how we're designed on my side. It's how I'm wired. Mm -hmm. I'm a surgeon and I'm like, my job is to relieve suffering. And so, um, you know, I think there's a little bit of a reframing around labor where, you know, uh, it's not comfortable, <laughs> but it's not the same as the suffering that I see in other settings. Mm -hmm. like, the oncology unit and when I, you know, think about other patients. Um, and so we, we, we should think about the pain management and coping side as well. Um, the, the one other thing I'll tell you is that in terms of the big, big decisions that moms make and the opportunities that they have is where you go to have your baby matters a lot. Well, can you talk about the role the hospital plays in the likelihood of a mother having a cesarean? Yeah. In 2017, Deb, the biggest risk factor for getting a C-section, which is the most common surgery performed on earth. So the biggest risk factor for the most common surgery is not a woman's preferences, not her medical risks, but literally which door she walks through. C-section rates in this country at the hospital level vary from 7% to 70%. There's tenfold variation depending on where you go. And then if you only look at the low risk women, there's 15 fold variation. It's absolutely insane. Uh, so a lot of moms pick who to go to, where to go based on who their doc or midwife is. And that makes sense because your relationship with them matters. But one, it's good to know that in most cases in 2017 in the U.S., the provider you see in the office is not the one who will deliver your baby in most cases. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the hospital that you pick can, like in Miami-Dade County in Southern California and many parts of our country, just crossing the street can double, triple, quadruple your C-section risk. So certain hospitals you're saying up, they have a 70% cesarean rate? Yeah. I can't ever wrap my head around that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you think, and so as a mom, like, it's good to know that, right? Yeah, that's uh, shit. And, um, you know, in 2017 also we're entering, a, you know, a world where um, you can look that up. Like, you can type it into Google and have a pretty good chance of knowing the answer. And even if you don't find the answer on Google... Uh, in 2017, hospitals are compelled to know the answer themselves because they have to report their C-section rate to the regulators uh, and to the insurance companies. So if you ask, uh, it's a knowable thing. 
Okay, that's important to know. So we should encourage our listeners to ask their either their care provider or the hospital what their cesarean rate is. So what would you say for, what does the role of the care provider then play? Because if you're saying it's more about the hospital, what's the role of the care provider uh, in the likelihood of a woman having a cesarean? The care provider matters too. Uh, so, I mean, this is complex and you sort of have to like peel back the layers like an onion. Right? Okay. So the hospital is one layer. And there are many reasons why the hospital itself matters, which we can talk about. Okay. Um, once you get to the hospital level, there's a lot of variation in practice, both for your physician or midwife and for your nurse, frankly. So <laughs> for the physician and midwife, uh, they will have very different C-section rates, too. When I was a resident um, at my hospital, that's like the one phase of your life as a doctor where you basically just live on the labor and delivery unit and you see different grown-up doctors come through. And, you know, there'd be days, depending on who walks in, where you knew you were going to do more C-sections based on who the person was. That's something that the people that work there always have insight into, but moms often don't. The other thing is that if you think about it, your doctor or midwife doesn't spend nearly as much time with you in labor as your nurse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your nurse or your doula, if you're fortunate enough to have one, are the primary sources of support. And there are some people that are better at that than others. And we've done work to show that your nurse absolutely matters. In fact, variation in terms of C-section rates by nurse at one hospital locally in Boston is about sixfold at one hospital. Um, with the implication being that like the nurse you get could increase your risk of getting a C-section up to six times. Well, are there any red flags that someone might see that the woman might not necessarily see it because she's in labor and not really as be interacting, but what might the partner see that they could see the nurse might not be supporting of a physiological birth? Um, that's a hard question, but I guess what I could say for the mom is one, to think about whether or not they can construct support around them. Uh, not all women have agency to do this, which is what's part of what's sad about the state of childbirth in the United States. But if you do have the resources and the interest, um, think about the role of your partner, number one. Um, and involve them uh, to the extent that they feel comfortable, but try to design an active role for them. Um, think about a doula. Um, honestly, doulas are one of the very few evidence-based things that improve people's experience and decrease C-section rates. Um, and think about your support team as a team that includes your nurse, um, because you often don't have the ability to pick your nurse. You rarely do. Um, I delivered my baby at our hospital because I could, yeah. <laughs> actually. <laughs> but like, you know, most people can't, and so you should think of them as part of a team. And um, you know, if most nurses that do labor and delivery are fabulous, I should say that actually, because labor and delivery nurses are special. They're not mm -hmm. like nurses in other parts of the hospital, and all nurses are special. But labor and delivery nurses have some of the hardest jobs in healthcare, and the only reason to do it is because you love it. Mm -hmm. If you think about what they actually do, like they work really, really hard. Um, and they usually select into it because they love it. And so for the most part, you'll probably be fine. But like you wouldn't run a marathon without a cheerleading squad either. Like you'd have your friends and family turn out and it's the same thing. Do you find that a lot of care providers support having doulas come in or have you ever heard of any that just find them to be um, bothersome? Both are true. Um, I think, you know, in the ideal state, it's a partnership where the doula relieves the work of the nurse and the doc and the other members of the care team mm -hmm. and the family. Um, you know, doulas are professional 
um, sources of caregiving and support. I actually find it fascinating that childbirth and palliative care are the two domains of healthcare where we've had to professionalize caregiving mm-hmm. beyond the clinical role because uh, support, um, the way that a coach would support you, or you know, when you're going through these key life transitions, um, makes such a big difference in people's outcomes and their experience. Um, and I think there are definitely doctors and nurses who recognize that and value it and see it as a you know, thing that actually relieves some of their responsibility. Um, and then there are those who see it as an adversarial thing. And I think it depends on both the clinician and the doula, frankly. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah. totally agree. And that's one thing I, I'm happy that a lot more uh, doula programs are trying to make sure that there is not an adversarial position because we want the doula to come in and help hold the space, not create friction in the space. Uh, I read in one of your articles um, that you said, in the United States, it appears about half the cesareans we do may be avoidable in hindsight. Getting to perfect may be hard, but there's a tremendous room for improvement. So what might be some of the red flags that you see in hindsight that might have been avoidable and that we can approve upon? There's so much opportunity. So, I mean, all of the variation that we see from place to place, uh, from hospital to hospital, is actually the clue to not only the size of the opportunity to do better, but what that might look like. You know, what are the seven percenters doing differently than the 70 percenters? Or maybe not even the seven percenters, because it's possible to have a C-section rate that's too low, too. But, you know, when we look at the people that are able to take care of um, a diverse set of women, who some of whom are high risk, some of whom are just normal and going through a normal life event, uh, and maintain all of that with relatively low rates of intervention and C-section rates. Like, what are they doing differently fundamentally? And so for the last uh, four years of my life, I've been traveling around the country and looking, uh, interviewing people that work um, in, in running these units and uh, visiting many of them. And uh, there's definitely a few common elements um, and we're trying to use insights into what the best people are doing to develop a solution that we think is scalable. So, you know, my, my team is actually spending the bulk of its energy right now figuring out what the solution to decrease C-section rates looks like safely. Um, but one of the key ideas that's emerged from this is that uh, the high risk, we use this idea of high risk in pregnancy in ways that are not totally coherent in my field. We conflate the idea of people being high risk in their pregnancy with them being high risk in labor of needing a C-section. So like, if you think about it, like, you know, actually the plurality of women end up getting some kind of label that makes them think that they're high risk, that some people end up wearing as a badge. But if you're 35, which turns out is like, you know, something like 16, 17% of moms, you're automatically high risk. And what that means is that compared to women who are 20, you know, your placenta is a little bit less robust. And so um, in your pregnancy, we may monitor you a little bit differently. But when you're in labor, that has nothing to do with your chances of needing a C-section. I also think it's how the care provider, this is just from my experience. Now, in New York City, I will say that figure is probably higher than 16%. We do tend to see an older group. And myself, I had my son at 37, my daughter at 40, and I had a home birth midwife and an OB kind of as a backup. And neither of them ever, and I knew that, you know, I was up clearly over 35, so technically I was high risk, but none of, neither of them ever made me feel high risk. They never treated me any differently and kept putting in my head, you're high risk, you're high risk. So I think it, that has to do a lot with how the care provider uh, 
categorizes and treats the woman. And then that's going to affect how she believes in her ability to birth, don't you think? A hundred percent. And I think there's a solution there too, because what the best places do that I've visited differently is that they're better at identifying women who are normal, labeling them as normal, and then preserving their normality over the course of their labor. And so like what that looks like operationally is that like when I walk onto my labor floor, I can identify every high risk patient very easily because when there, you know, there's some board with all the patients on it and there's some column that talks about, you know, whatever conditions they have. And when you scan across it, every woman with hypertension or diabetes, you can find the normal women. You can't, the only way you know who they are is by the absence of a label, which is interesting. Yeah. And the, Normal women are actually the ones that require the most support and consideration because the high-risk people are the ones where our field is really good at knowing how to manage. We've built our healthcare system for the woman who's high-risk. And, uh, you know, if somebody is truly um, at high-risk and needs my expertise as a surgeon, it's usually pretty obvious what to do. The harder thing are the women who are laboring longer than average. Or, um, you know, yeah, I mean, th- those are the ones who often need more of our energy and resources. And if we were able, able to identify those people, um, point out that in this mix of people who are super high risk and people who are normal, that the normal people ought to get different, uh, a different style of care than the ICU, I think that could go a long way. And then as we do that, one of the challenges with C-section rates is that we don't know what the optimal target is and that it's not zero. Because there are many things in, in healthcare improvement where the answer is zero, and that makes it a great target, like mortality. Zero people should die. But in C-sections, it's hard. That being said, for low-risk moms, before they're six centimeters, we should never do a C-section for labor progress, ever. The answer is zero. And just doing that and enforcing that would be worth tens of thousands of C-sections per year. Because if I'm correct on this, I believe the number one reason for first-time moms that have cesareans is um, failure to progress. And especially now that as childbirth educators, we're shifting active labor, not starting until six centimeters. So you're saying that before six, is not, you know, we're thinking it's not even uh, active labor. So we shouldn't give women C-sections until they're at least in active labor and had that chance to let their bodies really go. Not for labor progress. I mean, what happens is I, I'm, I picture labor and delivery as a laneless highway where people drift, mm-hmm. right? Like you get admitted and then you're going down a highway and the destination is your birth, which ideally is a vaginal birth, but then some people end up exiting early. Yeah, I mean, of course, not. I mean, if there's fetal distress, that's one thing, but just saying, okay, you're five centimeters, you've been stuck here for a while, failure to progress, baby's too big. So we're for a lot of women, they're getting classified in that before labor really has a chance to turn the corner. Well, that's exactly right. And it's all about how you classify. So when we do assessments of women in labor, we're looking at three things. We're looking at labor progress. We're looking at the maternal status. And we're looking at the fetal status. And right now, we conflate all three together. So if the mom has a fever, we think that they're at higher risk, right? But that has nothing to do with them laboring as long as the baby looks okay. And the idea that we have is about trying to get people to stay in their lane. Like when you do these assessments, take the labor progress piece out of it, because you're right, it's the leading cause of C-sections. So do you think, since most OBs are, are surgeons, do you think there's a lack of understanding normal labor, physiological labor, uh, how to support that? Well, the way I would put it is that midwives are undeniably the experts in how to manage normal labor, and that they, um, it's not... 
I think in, as obstetricians, we often think that that's the easy part. Um, I guess this is what I'm saying. And because we go to medical school and we train to be good surgeons that we're doing the hard part, but because, you know, the normal people like, of course, so we just know how to do that automatically. But, uh, there is definitely, I've observed and learned that there's a totally different skill set that goes with understanding how to best manage normal women. And often those are the folks who have, you have the most uncertainty about how long it's going to take and, um, whether or not their condition is going to shift and change. And uh, that just requires a different skill set that we are not as well trained for. Uh, and so the ideal thing would be a, you know, a collaborative approach or an approach that integrates the uh, midwifery model of care for those women. Yeah, I actually just learned that the current uh, percentage of midwives in our country is only 12%. Um, I'd love to see that go higher. What's your thought on trying to increase midwifery care? I think that's a good idea. It's not, <laughs> it is not a silver bullet. Okay. So I'll say that Yeah. to the extent that if you look at countries where midwives are up front, which is almost all of Europe mm-hmm. and actually most of the world where, you know, midwives are primary and then you only call the surgeon when you need them. Um, those places have lower C-section rates than we do, but they're also seeing similar rates of increase, right? There's a global pandemic of C-sections so, you know, in the UK, C-section rates are still much higher than they should be, and they've been going up for years, even though midwives are primary. So just increasing midwives alone will not do it unless we fix the system around the midwives. There are many midwives that feel like they can't practice as midwives because their practice environment makes them basically function as obstetricians mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the decisions they have to make and stuff. But that being said, unquestionably, I mean, um, midwifery mid- schools right now have uh, very, very low acceptance rates. There are many more, there's much more demand for, uh, young people who want to become midwives and there are spots for them. And that's crazy. We have a huge workforce shortage in maternal health. 50% of us counties have no qualified midwife OB or family practice doc to deliver babies. 50%. That's insane. Mm -hmm. We have access problems that resemble the third world. Um, you know, and so it makes a ton of sense to, build up our workforce and to make sure that midwives are a key part of that, uh, possibly even putting them at the center uh, rather than at the periphery as it is right now. I do think it's going to change. Our society is going to need to shift that. I think we're brought up to think hospital doctor, good. And when I had to, I had a midwife and my, my family's thought, you know, my husband, my family thought we were kind of crazy, crazy hippie midwife thing. So I think that we need to have a little bit of a societal shift. Cause as you mentioned, a lot of other countries have the midwives in the forefront and the, the care, the OBs on the back. So what do you think, do you think a hospital's always the safest place to birth? What do you think a home birth option or birth I center? Think, I think all of those options should be on the table because, um, there's nothing inherently safe or dangerous about a hospital or being at home. Um, that's the thing. Hospitals are not automatically safer than home, and homes are not automatically more dangerous. Um, the ideal system gives women the choice of whether or not they want to be at home, um, in a hospital, or at a birth center, and then builds a system around those options to make that choice as safe as possible. So, for example, like in the UK, um, they made a recommendation that it's safest for moms to have a baby at home if they're low risk, especially if they've had babies before. Uh, safest. 
And the reason they said that is because those women, if they go to the hospital, are much more likely to get a C-section. And if they're at home, they're babies, and they seem no worse off. What's different about the UK is that they send you a midwife to your home. Um, you get one-on-one care from a qualified provider. They, um, if there's an issue, for first-time moms, there's actually a 50% transfer rate to the hospital, which when you look at it, like, it seems crazy from the US perspective because when home births get transferred to the US, and it's always a disaster. Not always, but frequently a disaster. Because there's no coordinated system, like they have to call 911, 911, like the paramedics come, they don't really know who you are. Um, they take you someplace, the place doesn't know who you are often. Um, whereas in the UK, like they expect you to show up, they know exactly who you are, and they've got a plan. Um, and so that that's ideally what we would build here. Do the midwives continue the care? Because I know that when people transfer, we used to have a place in New York City, St. Vincent's, that the home birth midwives had privilege there. But now if a home birth goes to the other hospitals here, they don't have privilege and they have to either step aside or become the doula. Do you know if the other countries, it's a seamless transition? It's not perfectly seamless. And I think it depends on the conditions on the ground. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is an effort to maintain that continuity that's... um, clearly a preference usually uh, mm-hmm. for everybody involved and handoffs create another challenge and another opportunity for error. So, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to tie things up. First of all, amazing discussion. I really appreciate this. Do you have any takeaway tips for moms that are heading into birth that would really like to avoid an unnecessary cesarean? Beyond what we've discussed, I think, you know, probably again, the biggest things are to, make sure that you have a sense of what labor is going to look like, that you've thought about that and that you're prepared so that ideally you can go into the hospital as late as possible. Um, not because the hospital is just an unsafe environment or anything like that, but you know, a, a really good reason to wait to go into the hospitals. If you think about it, um, part of what we've normalized, like our grandparents, Deb, like had their babies at home. Mm-hmm. Right. And then all everyone they knew did too. <laughs> like everyone had babies at home two generations ago. And we've institutionalized birth and death, which are life's only two certainties in ways that have sometimes made things better off. And in other ways have made things worse in similar ways in both cases, mm-hmm. mostly in terms of erring on the side of doing too much. But beyond that, like, I mean, you're just more comfortable at home. Like you can like be in the comfort of your own home or you could be uh, on a hospital bed under fluorescent lighting tethered to a bunch of monitors. I mean, think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely delaying, um, the time that you come in and then being thoughtful about where you go. Those are probably the two biggest things you can do. Well, I thank you for your time and for all of your wisdom. So if people want to learn more about you and read more about what you've written, how can they find you? Um, that's a good question. I am <laughs> on the internet, I guess. I, I'm, easy to find on Google. I'm on social media. Um, so you could just look up my name, I guess, and and see what we're up to. Okay. Well, I really, again, I appreciate your time. I know you're super busy and quite sought after. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you, Deb. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.